quick note to our listeners. If you like the show, you know that we always put in a brief clip that we think is thematically relevant at the beginning. This week, we've chosen something a bit more obscure. We want to see if you guys can figure out what it is and how it's related to this play. Reach us on email or Twitter with your guesses. There may even be a prize. And now, The Merry Wives of Windsor. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Bardflies, a podcast about what happens when you're trying to date two girls at once who happen to be best friends. In this week's episode on the Merry Wives of Windsor, the fat, dissolute, immoral, and craven John Falstaff, a.k.a. Will's favorite Shakespearean character, meets his match in the shapely forms of two wealthy Windsor housewives. I'm James Smith. And I'm Will Quinn. This is episode 17, Ford versus Falstaff. Will, would you be so kind as to tell us all what happens in this play? With pleasure, James. Written in the late 1590s and first published in 1602, The Merry Wives of Windsor is a farcical comedy that picks up the popular character of John Falstaff from Henry IV and tosses him straight into the Thames. The play features two loosely intertwined plots, both centered in the town of Windsor, and features two prominent local families, the Pages and the Fords. The first plot features the chronically short-on-cash Falstaff scheming to seduce the wives of Page and Ford under false pretenses so he can con them out of money. He writes two identical letters to the ladies, pitching woo, and then asks his servants to deliver these letters to the women, only to have his servants balk at their task. He fires the servants, and they promptly go to the husbands of the wives and tell them about the entire scheme. Mr. Ford decides to seek revenge, assuming the identity of a master brook so he can get close to Falstaff and uncover more of the plot. The second storyline depicts the efforts of three suitors to win the hand of the page's lovely daughter, Anne. The three suitors are Dr. Caius, a Frenchman, Master Slender, a Justice of the Peace, and Master Fenton, a sincere young gentleman whose efforts to court Anne were thwarted previously by her parents due to his reputation for blowing his inheritance on the good life. Anne loves Fenton, while her mother prefers Caius and her father prefers Slender. The Merry Wives receive their letters from Falstaff and quickly discover that there is virtually no difference between those letters other than their names, and commiserate over their disgust in the interest that the fat, lascivious, and greedy knight has shown them. They decide to reverse catfish him by responding to his notes and ensnaring him in a trap. Meanwhile, Master Ford, presenting himself as Master Brook, approaches Falstaff and offers to pay Sir Jack to seduce his own wife, Mistress Ford. Falstaff readily agrees, and Ford laments the faithlessness of his wife, not knowing that she has machinations of her own. 
Falstaff arrives at the Ford's residence for his assignation, with Master Brooke planning to catch Falstaff and his wife in the act. But the Merry Wives convince Falstaff to hide in a basket of laundry just as Master Ford arrives. The wives order the basket, with Falstaff inside, to be dumped into the river, much to their enjoyment. Falstaff believes that the ladies are just negging him and playing hard to get, and therefore redoubles his efforts to seduce them both. He goes to meet the women again, but is warned once more about Master Ford's approach. They convince him to disguise himself as Mistress Ford's fat aunt, the Lady of Brentford, which he does with great aplomb. Master Ford, hoping to catch Falstaff in flagrante delicto with his wife, becomes enraged by what he assumes is the aunt, and promptly hits her, accuses her of witchcraft, and tosses her into the Thames once more. The wives eventually come clean to their husbands, and they work together to plot one final prank on Falstaff, which involves asking him to dress as Hearn the Hunter, the ghost of Windsor Forest, and dressing their children up as fairies in an effort to gaslight Sir John. Meanwhile, Master Page contrives to have Anne dress in white so that Slender can spirit her away and marry her post-haste. His wife and Caius do the same, but Anne tips Fenton off and they arrange to run off together and get married in the ensuing chaos. When Falstaff arrives at the appointed location, he ends up receiving a beatdown from the fairies, aka the children, and all the characters eventually reveal their true identities. Sir John accepts his comeuppance, Slender accidentally ran away with a boy rather than Anne, and Caius did the same, but actually married the boy he ran off with. Fenton and Anne return, married, and lecture their parents on the importance of true love. Everyone congratulates the young lovers, and they all go off together, inviting even Jack Falstaff to join the celebration. Thank you, Will. So there's a bunch of things to talk about here. But before we get into the substance of the play itself, I know there's a lot of theorizing and legends, or maybe they're not really legends, around how this play was written. Do you know anything about that? Can you share any of that with us? Sure. So this play has a rather interesting provenance. According to theatrical legend and not exactly contemporary sources, but shortly after Shakespeare's life and times, many people claimed that Queen Elizabeth was so tickled by John Falstaff in Henry IV Part One that she commissioned Shakespeare to write a play within the period of two weeks' time featuring Jack Falstaff as a central character, uh, a comedy that could be performed to celebrate uh, various royal occasions. So the story is, two weeks' time, royal commission from Elizabeth I, Jack Falstaff as a central character. That's the origin story of this play. Now, I think factually speaking, there's a lot of doubt that's been cast on that exact origin story, uh, which we can discuss why it might have taken hold and why people are still citing it today. Yeah, that sort of gets into my next question because, so I read in the introduction to the play that that story is, I don't know if disputed is, is exactly the right word, but is considered to be apocryphal or probably untrue, or at the very least, there's no clear evidence for it being true, right? And so then the question becomes, well, why has it taken such a deep root? And I suppose, you know, there, there's one answer to that, which is just, it's kind of a good story, right? It's like fun to imagine that Queen Elizabeth really liked this character and so wanted Shakespeare to write uh, something featuring him. But also... Uh, there's something to it about the critical reputation of the play, and it does seem to me, as the introduction 
uh, we're both using the same Pelican uh, edition of the play, so we're, we're working from the same source for our listeners who are might be wondering about that. But this this introduction does make the point that some of it seems to be an excuse, right? It seems to be based around critics not particularly liking this play that much and wanting there to be a reason that it might not be as good as Shakespeare's other work. So I have some thoughts on that, but let me just ask you the question to lead off. Do you have any reaction to that? Do you think that's a fair assessment? And of course, I don't want to step too much on our rankings of the play itself, but what's your reaction to that? Well, we can't preempt the sanctity of the rankings, of course, but I would simply say that this play is not regarded as one of Shakespeare's best by critics. Uh, It's generally been popular with audiences, but certainly not with critics, particularly literary critics, who are fixated, I think, on the character of Falstaff as he appears in Henry IV, parts one and two, where he is a character in which they see a great deal of Shakespeare's humanism come through, and many of his reflections on age and mortality are really taken to heart as one of Shakespeare's great achievements in his plays, and particularly in his history plays. And so, in that sense, there's a little bit of excuse-making, because Sir John in this play is entirely a butt of jokes. He's entirely a farcical character who is enjoyable to watch, but they do not like the notion, the critics do not like the notion of John Falstaff being just a comedic figure, the equivalent of one of the Marx brothers. Yeah, I mean, so (laughs) Harold Bloom's essay on this play in Shakespeare, The Origin of the Human is, I think, all of four pages, maybe five pages, and basically is just Bloom complaining about how this is an imposter Falstaff. This isn't the real Falstaff of Henry IV, parts one and two. And this is, I mean, I wouldn't, I don't think he goes so far as to describe it as offensive, but essentially, and I think this probably extends beyond Harold Bloom. This is just the one anecdotum that I can offer. He's just really bothered by the portrayal of Falstaff and by Shakespeare's treatment of Falstaff in this play. So I can't deny, Will, I sort of perhaps prejudicially or or ask the question in a leading way, because I do think that this is actually a prime example of something that we have talked about offline or in text messages as we've been going through some of these plays, which is that I, I feel like the criticism of this play on this basis, like so much criticism of Shakespeare, and I guess criticism in general, really tells us a lot more about the critics than about Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Because... To be honest, if you're Harold Bloom and you're saying this Falstaff is an imposter, he's not as great as the Falstaff in Henry the Fourth, Part One and Two. Now we haven't gone to Henry the Fourth, Part Two yet, but I, I think you and I are probably in agreement that this play just isn't as good as Henry the Fourth, Part One. But also, I think some of that just has to do with the fact that Falstaff in Henry the Fourth, Part One is just one element of a very large scale drama, right? And so this point of view that he represents has sense and has impact because of how it interacts with and against the other viewpoints in the play, particularly the viewpoint of Percy, right, of Hotspur. I honestly, I think that this play probably does, like, I don't think this play is dishonest about what Falstaff looks like and how Falstaff comes off in the context of a play that is you know, doesn't have that highly dramatic, high-stakes backdrop 
and is just a comedy. Do, do you agree with me? Yeah, I, th- I, I think that that's generally true. I think that, to your point, Falstaff works well, and the reason that he has any weight, literally or figuratively, to him in Henry IV Part One and Part Two, is because he is a counterpoint to other characters. He represents a different philosophy or approach to life than some of the other folks that are prominently featured in Shakespeare's stories. And that's what gives him any dramatic resonance whatsoever. But if you take Falstaff and just sit him in Eastcheap to use the setting of Henry IV Part One, he's going to be drinking, whoring, getting into trouble, doing things that are generally stupid and getting into all sorts of shenanigans unsavory can unsavory activities unsavory? i think we can say unsavory activities the capons he, may be savory will but faustus behavior less so <laughs> yes certainly but he is a character worthy of farce in that setting i think that the best actors that portray falstaff in the history plays always add a little bit more to him than just the ridiculousness of the Falstaff of this play, but they're absolutely the same person. It's the context, in my view, that draws out different aspects of Sir John and foregrounds them in the setting of a history play in which there's a grand sweep and backdrop versus a farcical comedy in which he is essentially the butt of jokes and is a con man, which is what he is in the other plays as well. He just happens to be more of a comic figure and solely a comic figure in this setting. So I think the setting right. and, and the genre I mean matters a lot, and it's totally the same person in my view. It's just uh, just transplanted to a different universe. Yeah, and, and to, to a universe, I think, wherein the venality and the negative aspects of Falstaff's behavior are just more apparent, I think. And to that point, I think, I think part of what these critics are getting at, or, or, or when I say that like this tells us more about the critics than about Shakespeare, is I think it's difficult, and I, I say this because I think even in our discussions, we run into this for ourselves, right? I think there is a desire to think that the artist's view of the character is the one that we share. And so I wonder, and I know this is getting a little bit further afield from the topic, but I wonder if it is actually somewhat revealing of Shakespeare's attitude towards Falstaff that this is the play about Falstaff and the portrayal of Falstaff that he chose when he was writing about Falstaff outside the context of his history plays. Well, I don't know that I necessarily agree with that. I think a lot depends on the context, right? I think that... Part of the challenge, and this actually goes to why I think the critics make these excuses for this play, there's the question of whether you view Falstaff as a character that's carved on stone tablets and handed down and is meant to always be presented in the same way and that his essence always has to be the same. I don't know that that's necessarily true because I I think he's working in completely different genres with completely different intentions. And there are moments, indisputably, in the Henriad where Falstaff is meant to be a figure of pathos, not just the butt of jokes, though of course he is that as well. I think that what's interesting to me about it, and this is the parallel with Shakespeare, is a lot of these critics, they cannot accept in some ways, that Shakespeare was human, to subvert Harold Bloom's book title to some degree, that he would have written something, whether quickly or not, and it might not have been 
his best work, or he may have had different intentions and may have just used a character as a different type of flavor in a in a different type of setting. So I, I I don't know. I feel like there's this effort to make the character stand in for not just Shakespeare's views, but also for the critics, their views of Shakespeare as a genius, who can never have really produced anything all that bad, or always had an excuse for when he wasn't performing at top quality, top tier, 99th percentile of, of his work. And they, when they say that this one falls short, it's because, well, of course, you know, he, he was being pressured. He did it for money. He did it really quickly. Royal Commission and had to turn it around. He had to satisfy his patron. All of that is to sort of say, well, we can give him a mulligan on this one. But to me, it's it's actually totally acceptable that he's written in a different genre, a side of Sir John that is clearly present in the other plays, but is really just meant more as pure entertainment yeah, than any I, sort of pathos. There's a lot in what you just said, Will, but to take the smaller thing first, you said something about his essence having to be the same. I think his essence is the same in this play. I do think this is the same Sir John fundamentally as in Henry the Fourth, Part One. Yeah, to clarify, I mean, I, I agree with you that a essential aspect of Falstaff's character is being reflected in both sets of plays. I would just say that, as in life, right, people do not necessarily present every aspect of their character, even every important aspect of their character, in every setting in which they are placed, right? right? And I think that's more what I'd suggest might be going on here which is that it can be the same person you're just seeing him operate in a different mode that is like there's some overlap sure but there's also some that's left off the page and of course like why would you put in anything involving pathos with sir john (laughs) right then to your other point regarding excuses i i mean i think you're right in the sense that people want to make excuses for their favorite artists or for their favorite anything Mm -hmm. right like if your favorite sports team does something poorly, you want to say, oh, there's a reason for it, and that excuses it. I think that the argument that, oh, he had to write it fast, he had to write it under pressure, whatever, like, those might be true statements. At the same time, like, sometimes the best work that people do in their careers is the things they have to do under deadline in two weeks because the work flows. You know what I mean? Right. Similarly, I mean, look, I think plenty of directors, of film directors, I mean, end up doing their worst work when they have unlimited resources and can do whatever they want. Exactly. So, you know, I think ultimately you you own it no matter what it is. And of course, uh, like, I don't think we need to think less of Shakespeare because a particular play is bad, right? Or, or is not as good as his other work because, I mean, look, Will, we've read Titus Andronicus and The Two Gentlemen <laughs> of Verona for this podcast, right? I mean, we know Shakespeare was uh, very, very human indeed. I, I mean, this is the man whose name is on Edward III. Let, let yes. us not forget. Yes. So I, I think it's very possible to acknowledge that some of the work may be, shall we say, less than perfect mm-hmm. without, you know, without that diminishing our appreciation for his genius. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think that him writing Merry Wives of Windsor, which I will say, not to tip my hand too far, much better play than Edward III, in my view, is still... It doesn't have to be great or even good for me to appreciate Shakespeare as a whole. 
Shakespeare was a genius. I make no bones about that. I'm very upfront that that's my view, but that does not mean that everything that flowed from his pen was brilliant. I think one of the themes of this podcast that we've been talking about off and on over the past year or so has been Shakespeare's, not just his humanity, but the fact that he evolved as an artist and produced under different circumstances. But as to your point, I sometimes think constraints can be liberating to artists, certainly. And the great boondoggles of Hollywood are often the ones where unlimited budgets, crazy sets, I mean, often you get better documentaries about the making of movies that fail than the movies themselves, right? I think of that Polish director who had the failed adaptation of Dune in the Mm -hmm. 1970s that never even got produced. That's a great case of that. There are obviously reinterpretations of this, but something like Michael Cimino's... uh, Heaven's Gate. Heaven's Gate, uh, which is enjoying a little bit of a critical revisionist reappraisal. Of course it is. Of course it is. Of course, because everything, everything goes through a wave of revisionism now. But there's a lot of these movies that you can even see flashes of genius in them, but they can still be dogs at the end of the day. We're just not great because the artist was let off the leash. And the same can be true sometimes of producing things under less than optimal circumstances. But to your point, sometimes dashing stuff off can liberate people that are head cases when they are artists and really struggle to get things down on page. I know I produce pretty well under deadline when I'm really uh, forced to do so. Let me take a step back here to this point of maybe this play isn't the greatest. We seem to be converging towards that. But this play isn't terrible. And as with Titus and some of the other work that we've disparaged a bit on the pod, there are still still some good elements in this play, uh, one of which is Shakespeare's great gusto and love of insult comedy. And I was wondering if you if you felt the same and if there was anything else, whether it's a plot element, characterization, stagecraft that you appreciated about this one and think it does well. I, I feel like early in the play, I was sort of struggling to understand what I was doing or, you know, or how to read it or, or maybe I just didn't like it very much. And then, you know, once you get into act three and once the two wives are really in the groove of sending up Falstaff and giving him his just desserts, I started to feel like, you know what? Yeah, this is actually this is actually pretty fun. And so I, to me, actually, I think what I enjoyed maybe the most about the play was just finding Shakespeare working in a completely different dramatic mode. So to the point about him, you know, having certain constraints or the idea of being liberated by your constraints, I kind of feel like the idea of I have to write a play starring John Falstaff kind of enables him to go in the direction of, a, of saying, okay, I'm just going to write a straight farce. Because I do feel like this is a very different comic type than we've seen mm-hmm. from Shakespeare before. And I, I thought it was fun seeing, you know, there's the accent humor of Dr. Caius, you know, where you have him, I don't have a, a quote in front of me, but where you find Dr. Caius saying stuff in these in this ridiculous accent that's rendered on the page and he's saying all his v's as f's or his w's as f's and things like that that's a certain type of like almost lowbrow humor mm-hmm. that we haven't really seen before or you know the situational comedy of the wife and trapping falstaff and then dumping him in the river and then him coming back for more and then him getting beaten up like, i think we saw a little bit of that stuff in the comedy of errors mm-hmm. as well but this play is more of a straight farce, right? It's, it's not as dependent as, as that play on the 
or it's, in fact, it's not dependent at all in that in the way that play is on the doubling thing. You know, mm-hmm. this is just about the situation, the ridiculousness of Falstaff pursuing these two women in exactly the same way at the same time, and barely even being able to differentiate between them. We're not trying to differentiate between them. <laughs> and then they're turning the tables on him. Yes. Sorry, that was all a pretty long-winded way of saying that I, I actually quite enjoyed the different comic discourse of it and yeah. just seeing Shakespeare play around with this different stuff. And, you know, and, and maybe it's not as effective as some of his other plays or maybe it's not as thematically rich, but I think it can be pretty fun at points. Yeah, I think the abandonment of any pretense to irony and really just letting the audience in on all of the jokes, it actually kind of works in its own way. Just to give the audience a bit of flavor of some of the dialogue here, I want to read a brief passage with Mistress Ford and Mistress Page in which they discover Falstaff's plot when they get their letters delivered. Just to give you a flavor of Shakespeare's mode, and it should also be noted that this play is the play of Shakespeare's with the most prose in it. There's very little verse in this play. If Richard II is the high watermark of verse in Shakespeare's plays, this one is very much written in the vernacular. So, Mistress Ford and Mistress Page. If I would but go to hell for an eternal moment or so, I could be knighted. What? Yeah, read, read. Perceive how I might be knighted. I shall think the worse of fat men as long as I have an eye to make difference in men's liking. How shall I be revenged on him? I think the best way were to entertain him with hope till the wicked fire of lust have melted him in his own grace. Did you ever hear the like? Letter for letter. But that the name of Page and Ford differs. He is the twin brother to thy letter. I warrant you have a thousand of these letters writ with blank space for different names. <laughs> sure, more. And he will print them out of doubt, for he cares not what he puts into the press when he would put us to. I'll find you 20 lascivious turtles, ere one chaste man. So I think you could just take and run with a little bit of that as the sort of tone of the play. The umbrage that the characters take is often very amusing, very overwrought. And of course, it's quite plausible to imagine Falstaff running around with a thousand letters with a uh, Mad Lib style fill in the blank at the address line. Let me, well, I just want to make one comment about this particular scene since we're talking about it. It wasn't something that I had thought I would bring up or would come up on the pod, but... There is an element to this scene that I feel like is very, actually surprisingly resonant with contemporary online dating practices. (laughs) The idea of like people who have their scripted openers that they have pre-written and send out on these online platforms. And I've read stories about people who have like entire scripts of conversations pre-written because every online dating conversation starts out the same way. I just thought that it was funny to to see that kind of resonance in Shakespeare's time. Yes, well, who can doubt that Falstaff would have been up on the apps and would have been uh, swiping right and left pretty vigorously? No, no. The thing is, well, Falstaff would only be swiping right. That's probably true, though I feel like he does target these women because they're rich. So there Falstaff is, is the guy who's just on his app and every single, he's just swiping right on every single person to just see who he can match with. I guess that's true. You got to cast a wide net if you're Jack Falstaff and are fat, middle-aged, 
and uh, have questionable game, to say the least. So, James, I think we've discussed the merits of the play in various ways. We've discussed the structure, the background, the critical reputation. But to me, the really interesting question that Mary Wives of Windsor raises, uh, and that its provenance raises, is whether this play could be classed as a spin-off in the Hollywood sense. Oh, hi! Welcome back to our spin-off showcase. Could The Simpsons ever have maintained its popularity without Moe the bartender? Let's hope so, because Moe's leaving to do his own sitcom. And what exactly makes spinoffs work or fail, and whether this is a case of a spinoff working or failing? So what do you think? Is this a spinoff? So you'll be shocked to know, Will, that I have mildly complicated opinions about this. So I have to say, I think in the most naked sense of it, or the most bare sense of it, yes, I think this play absolutely qualifies as a spinoff in the Hollywood sense, in that it is a secondary character of another work that is then being given their own world to shine in. I think that is as close to a textbook definition of a spinoff as you can get. That said, I think we often use the term spinoff in a disparaging context. Mm. By which I mean, I feel like movies or books that are spinoffs in like that technical sense, but mm. that are artistically rewarding, are mm. not viewed as spinoffs. The thing is only a spinoff, I think, if it can only be viewed through the lens of being a spinoff of another work, not when it can exist on its own. So I, I realize that sounds like a sort of a semantic distinction, mm-hmm. but... I wanted to make it because I do think there's just a language around this that needs to be parsed, you know, because I mm. think you know, we were talking previously about making a list of spinoffs. And I think some of the ones that I thought of that I would say definitely qualify as spinoffs in a technical sense, people would view as being pretty legitimate works of art on their own. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the two biggest ones that came to mind for me were The Odyssey and Huck Finn. Mm. The Odyssey, obviously, in some, you know, maybe you would describe it more as a sequel to the Iliad, but The Odyssey is taking a character who is a significant character in the Iliad, in Odysseus, but mm-hmm. definitely not the main character. I, I mean, I would say Odysseus is at best a tertiary character in the Iliad, mm-hmm. and then focusing on on that character to tell that story. Right. Or similarly, Huck Finn, you know, Huck Finn is a secondary character, and an, an instrumental character, but not the main character of Tom Sawyer, and then is given his own book. And I think many people, in fact, probably most people would say that Huck Finn is a, is a superior artwork mm-hmm. to Tom Sawyer. So, yes. I think in that context, we're only talking about, like when we talk about spinoffs in this sort of derogatory way, and, mm-hmm. and you know, for instance, when they made the, the Han Solo movie recently, there's no question that's a spinoff. Mm-hmm. People hate that movie, and that's why it remains a spinoff. That's why it's not its own thing. So I, I don't know if I've answered your questions. Yeah, no, no, I think, I think you have. So I guess hearing you talk about it makes me think of a couple addenda that I'd add. So one is my sense is that the term spinoff probably originates from the television universe, which is already operating in a (laughs) rather lower, I think, register than some of these other works of art that you're talking about and lends itself towards disparagement and complete flops, perhaps in a way that some of these literary works don't. But it also makes me think that 
Part of what I think of when I think of a spinoff is when you take a character who exists in a particular setting and send them off to do their own thing in a way that is actually somewhat hived off from their original fictional universe. And that to me is a little bit different than an expanded universe where there's some sort of connection. It's a very richly imagined and built world. Mm -hmm. And you put people, maybe different people, but it's in the same ballpark, same sort of universe that they're working in. So for example, like I would say Star Trek The Next Generation is not a spinoff. It's a separate, it's literally the next generation of the Star Trek story. You don't know those characters beforehand, really, except for um, one of the films where Kirk makes an appearance. You don't necessarily have to deal with any of that. You can appreciate it standing on its own in some ways. It doesn't draft off of, um, you know, a character that's popular in another setting being ported over to a new setting. And then similarly with Star Wars, and I think this is the difference between, say, Solo and what was the one that focused? Rogue One. Rogue One. So Rogue One is interesting because it's a prequel and it's an element of the original trilogy. It's trying to build out the story of how they got the Death Star plans. And I actually really enjoyed Rogue One for what it was, which was telling a constrained story that you sort of knew a little bit about. You didn't actually know too many of the characters beforehand, but they run with it and they tell a story that's connected to this broader universe of Star Wars stuff. Solo, there's really no real reason, in my view, for that movie to exist. It's not really essential to understanding, really to understanding Han Solo, in my view. Others may disagree. Your mileage or parsecs may vary depending on your 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 interest in, in that. But I see it as... This is an effort to put a character that people love in new situations, not to tell a story or flesh out another aspect of a a broader universe. Uh, And maybe that's a distinction without a difference, but that's sort of my my way of thinking Yeah, I mean, I think this actually gets to a little bit of what I was saying earlier about the different comic modality of this Mm -hmm. play, right? Is that I think often when these things are successful, and actually this, I think, it's interesting because I think often when these things are most successful is also when they are least liked by the people who are theoretically supposed to be the audience for it mm-hmm. on the basis of there being stories about these beloved characters, right? Right. Because I feel like, you know, where they become interesting is where the artist is given the opportunity to, or or takes the opportunity, I should say, to just go in some different direction and try something out and like mm-hmm. just do something different. And that's where I think they can work as works of art. But the right. problem is that when you do that, people don't want to see, and this goes back to what we were talking about with Falstaff and the critics, but you know, maybe you could also talk about this with regard to Solo, for instance. Um, or, or maybe to, to extend the Star Wars example, Will, this isn't quite the same conversation because it's not exactly a spinoff, but with the, you know, the new Star Wars sequels, Mm. I think the great sin of of those movies and the reason that they're pretty terrible to my mind is that they're just regurgitating the same plot elements and thematic ideas in like sort of a mashed up, reformatted or or reorganized form. But they're still basically the same as the original Star Wars movies. But they're just not the original Star Wars movies, right? So, you know, where I think they would be much more rewarding from, again, purely from an aesthetic perspective, from a perspective of art and storytelling, they'd be much more interesting if they were doing something 
different. Mm -hmm. And so I think there is that tension between wanting to innovate and wanting to go in different directions and try new things and the demands of your audience. Right. Yeah, I actually, I think that's really true. And I'll, I'll use some illustrations of some spinoffs that I think work and ones that, that fail to sort of speak to this point. So I think the ones that often fail, I tend to think of SNL character sketches that get spun into their own theatrical release. And some of those become cult classics like Night at the Roxbury and, and so forth, or even Pat, which I think was an early SNL spinoff. But generally, these movies are pretty bad because there's no real thought to how you extend that character. Well, one, it's based on like a five-minute comedy sketch. So where do you even go with it? So that's one problem. Then there's the problem of, say, Joey, which was the spinoff of Friends, where you take a character and they don't really exist without the universe and group of people that they were with beforehand. They don't have their context, and when you remove them from that context and try and build a new one, it doesn't really feel the same. And the counterpoint to that would be Frasier, which is a spinoff from Cheers. But Frasier takes that character, played by Kelsey Grammer, and transplants him to a new place in Seattle, but builds an entirely rich universe around him you know he has the father who has health problems who's a retired cop who moves in and sort of is the counterpoint to Frazier's snootiness and pretentiousness you have Niles the brother who he's constantly having conflict with and is a, a wild character in his own right they kind of built a new setting that made sense for the character but also were able to stand on more than just the novelty of seeing like, oh, we love Joey. We want to see more of Joey. And it's like, well, yeah, you want to see more of Joey doing Joey-type things with the people you're comfortable with. In Frasier, it was a relatively minor character that they built out and it added new characters that were just as beloved, if not more so, over time. It didn't all stand or fall based on how much you loved Frasier as a character. You could create a whole different comedic setting. And similarly, yeah and, and, yeah. and let me just say to that point, or just to further your point, you know, I think there is an argument that this is not always the case, but I think it's often the case where when there's a secondary character who's beloved, the desire to see them in their own context or in their own work of art can really be misguided. You know, like mm -hmm. there are great characters that really work and are attractive and fun to watch by virtue of filling that secondary role in mm -hmm. a larger piece. You know, I yes. think of, th this might be the highest example of it, but Anthony Hopkins in The Silence of the Lambs mm -hmm. won Best Actor for that performance. That is a very small element of that movie. But I think that that character and the Hopkins performance works really well in the context of being this, like, very sinister Mm -hmm. uh, minor role that nonetheless casts a certain shadow over the proceedings of the overall storyline mm. as opposed to seeing Hannibal Lecter in his own movie feels like that might still be good but I don't think it could reach the heights of the secondary character Hannibal Lecter as seen mm -hmm. in La Science of the Lambs. Do, do you yeah, agree with that? I, I generally agree with that. I think the novels in which Hannibal Lecter is featured, Red Dragon, Silence of the Lambs, Hannibal, I mean, clearly the author, Thomas Harris, 
is playing with that character as a through line. But I think what makes Silence of the Lambs and Manhunter, the earlier adaptation of Red Dragon, with uh, William William Peterson and Mm -hmm. And uh, Brian Brian Cox, Cox, which is also a great take on the same character, uh, same material, Michael Mann, very stylized presentation of it. I think what makes that work is he's this sinister and important thread through the movie, but the plot actually... While it may depend on him at certain junctures, it is not about him, per se. He might be the most intriguing element, but then the movies Hannibal and Hannibal Rising, they kind of fall flat on their faces in some ways. I mean, Hannibal is actually okay. I don't really mind it that much. But where you're trying to give too much of the backstory in the context of a film, it can become tedious, especially when you're not relying on a very talented performer like Anthony Hopkins, right? Yeah. You start getting away from the brilliance of that. And, and you know, you realize how much things really do depend on the actor that's carrying the material. Could Harrison Ford have done a bunch of Han Solo movies in the 1980s, and could they have been smashing successes as a spinoff? Probably, right? I mean, it would have depended on the script. But Han Solo, Harrison Ford makes Han Solo. Yeah, I mean, look, to this very same point, Will, the effort to make the, uh, I don't know if you'd exactly call this a spinoff, but the the effort to make the Jeremy Renner Bourne movie. Oh, yeah, yeah. Versus the Matt Damon Bourne movies. And look, the the most recent Bourne movie, I I think, was pretty bad. But Mm -hmm. if you're going from Matt Damon as Jason Bourne to off-brand Jeremy Renner as (sighs) off-brand... Jason Bourne, it's just not the same. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the other thing, this is another successful example, but think of um, the Wolverine movies, which are spinoffs of X-Men. Some of them work better than others. I think Logan, Hugh Jackman's last movie in that role of Wolverine, is actually quite a good film for all that. It's riffing on Shane, the classic Western, so it's in a different sort of setup. It's a much more subdued, moody piece. It has Patrick Stewart. It has some of the other characters that you know and love from the X-Men franchise. And it's operating in a broader fictional universe, but it also feels intimate and justified because Wolverine is a developed character in your sort of consciousness. It's not the equivalent of seeing Boba Fett for like two minutes on screen in Empire Strikes Back and then fanboying out and demanding a whole series based around this bounty hunter that is cool armor. Now, some people like The Mandalorian. I haven't seen it. But, like, I think you can say in Attack of the Clones, the fixation on the Boba Fett, Jango Fett Mm -hmm. thing doesn't really make a lot of sense. I I will say regarding Logan, Will, I think Logan's a really good movie. And that was one of my favorite movies of the year that that movie came out. And it's an interesting counterpoint, Logan versus the other Wolverine sequels, which I think are much less successful. Mm-hmm. And in that, I think Logan works because it is its own weird thing. And they just had the freedom or, or took the opportunity to do something different with it. You know, so I, mm-hmm. I, I actually sort of view that in support of the point. Of this thesis. Before. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think we've given a lot of examples. I mean, I think the other way in which a spinoff can work is in the context of something like The Daily Show, right, where... It's sort of a comedic news program, right? And Colbert, Stephen Colbert, the character, was a correspondent for that show, and he got his own program. And initially, I was skeptical of whether that could work, but it really did work, obviously, for a period of time, because he had something Mm -hmm. to do, and he had new content to riff on every day. You can't necessarily expect that 
from characters that are just transplanted into another scripted series. So there's different ways in which I think the quote-unquote spin-off, spiritual sequel, expanded universe concept can work, but there's a lot of things that have to be present for it to yeah. work and be effective. And there's a lot of ways it can fail pretty catastrophically, particularly in a TV context where it's it's literally like, let's write the pilot. People love this character. It's going to be a cash cow. Let's run with it. And then the, the concept mm-hmm. doesn't really get vetted. And then it just falls flat on its face. So, James, now that we have amply covered both the play and our passion or lack thereof for various spinoff franchises and concepts i think it's time to rank this baby and see where it fits in with our overall power ranking so as i'm reviewing the list look well i don't think this play is overwhelmingly successful by any stretch of the imagination but i I actually do think it's pretty fun Mm -hmm. and i enjoy the different mode of it and I, i think there's some fun moments so as I'm looking over our rankings, I actually think I might put it as high as number 11, mm. or excuse me, number nine. I think I might put it between Henry VI, part one, and Richard II. Interesting. Interesting. And uh, who is your MVP? I got to go with Mistress Ford. Mm. I mean, the women in this play are actually quite fun to watch because they have something to do, I will say. And watching them get the better of the men partially including their own husbands to some degree, because Mr. Ford is a bit of a dupe. I, I, I do admit that I kind of like that. So where, Interesting. where are you going to place it, Will? So this is actually a, a rather tough one for me to rank in some ways. I think I, I put it a little bit lower than you. I think I would put it below Henry VI Part One, but above Comedy of Errors. I like it a little bit more than Comedy of Errors. Though, I don't know. I don't. Once you get to this point, my sentiments uh, start... <laughs> yeah, the, the, relatively quickly. Uh, look, I have to say, it's the the gaps between the plays in this level are not that. Yes, high, you know, it's not like choosing between where to where to place the Merry Wives of Windsor in the context of Henry VI Part One and Comedy of Errors and Henry VI Part Three. It's like there's not that much separation between any of these. No, plays. and and I will say, I found reading personally King John and even Titus to be more strictly speaking enjoyable than The Merry Wives of Windsor. I will admit that that is how I feel about it, even though I think this play works a little bit better than either of those. Mm-hmm. But that's my that's my justification. So it's coming in as my new number 11, uh, one below Henry VI Part One, one above Comedy of Errors. And for the MVP, Will? I'm going to go with John Falstaff. I know I'm going to take uh, no end of guff from you about just that. The, but just the barn flies leading... Falstaff apologist over here. Hey, you know, you can cast it however you want, but I do think he adds um, some enjoyable laughs to this one. And certainly in the hands of the right actor, this is a, a very enjoyable role, I think, to watch somebody play. I mean, he gets tossed into a river twice, once in a basket, once in drag. He does you take know. it all with surprisingly good humor. He, he takes say. it all with surprisingly good humor, and, and that counts for a lot these days because very few people do. So... Will, now that we have been further exposed to your sympathy with dissolute, craven, cold-hearted, capon-eating bastards, 
I think that probably brings us to a point of closure on The Merry Wives of Windsor. But before we go, I'd like to see if you have a recommendation for our listeners. And furthermore, since we've spent so much of this episode talking about spinoffs, do you in particular have any spinoffs you recommend that you think are worth reading or watching or listening to or any of the above? Yes. So I'm going to make a deep cut from my childhood on the subject of spinoffs. We're pretty harsh on the new Star Wars films. I think neither of us like them very much. There's a whole bunch of problems with them. I don't even really love the franchise as much as I did when I was a kid. I'll be perfectly honest about that. However, I did read the Star Wars Expanded Universe novels as a kid. And there's one short story collection in particular that is a spinoff of sorts from A New Hope that I think is worth reading. It's called Tales of Mos Eisley Cantina, and it's a short story collection edited by Kevin Anderson, and it features all of the characters, little vignettes and short stories, of the characters that you see in the Mos Eisley Cantina scene in Star Wars A New Hope. Some of them are more comedic, some of them are crime stories. I do not need to see spin-off films featuring any of these characters. For the record, George Lucas, Disney, it does not need to happen. Just let it stand on its own. Though I actually think that they've totally put the kibosh on the expanded universe and it's officially non-canon. But when I read this in maybe fifth grade, fourth grade, something like that, I enjoyed it tremendously. I recommend it for those of you that really want a Star Wars fix that is brief and enjoyable. All right, one more time, Will. What's the name of the recommendation? Tales from Mos Eisley Cantina, edited by Kevin J. Anderson. And that's our show. Next time, Falstaff returns to military duty as Henry IV and Prince Hal look to finish off the rebellious Northmen in Henry IV Part Two. Thanks for tuning in to Bardflies. If you like the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. Share the show with your friends and give us a glowing five-star review. You can also follow us at Bardflies on Twitter or drop us a line at bardfliespodcast at gmail.com.